we're going to discuss the challenges of this text, I promise I will give you the kernel of truth that I believe is a takeaway and a simple application today, as you know, um, you're very well aware that I usually do. Um, with all of the challenges, though, presented, um, after looking at presenting a, a PowerPoint, um, it would have been too distracting and too full of information. So I'm going to ask you to listen the old-fashioned way without visual aids this morning and just use your Bible or your phone or your tablet, and we're going to turn to some passages together to help us understand the text in front of us. All right? So our text is Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. Now you say, but pastor, aren't we past that? Or didn't Pastor Stephen get us to Genesis chapter 9? And the answer is yes, he did. And I promise we'll jump back. And he left me another doozy uh, to teach about here at the tail end of that chapter as well. Uh, but, but in order for us to frame the next section that we're going to discuss, we need to go back um, and talk about verses 1 to 8. Now, if you recall, um, when we went through verses 1 to 8, we gave you the big picture context and the big flow of the narrative, and I'm going to remind us of what that was to help frame what this says, okay? So let's just read the scripture today, probably the most important thing we'll do, and let's let the Holy Spirit, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand his word as we walk through some of these Bible difficulties in Genesis chapter 6. Verses 1 to 8, the Lord gives us this instruction. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of men, son, excuse me, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made the man, man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Father, as we look to the Word of God this morning and we deal with a practical exercise of explaining Bible difficulty, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand it, that you would help me as your mouthpiece to push through fatigue and mental fatigue, Lord, so that I can explain clearly the point of your text today without distraction, without conflation, without emotional dissipation, but just the clarity and continuity of your Holy Spirit teaching us what the Word says and what it means. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 6, of course, flows from the beginning. And as you recall, as I mentioned before, chapters 1 
through 11 form from the narrator's masterful presentation uh, sections that are divided by a Hebrew hook, a Hebrew word that cues us to the next section. And that Hebrew word was the word toledoth, which we told you is translated uh, many different ways or variants. But in particular, uh, these are the generations of or the genealogy of. Um, so you will see the word uh, toledoth translated in different English fashions in, in chapters 1 to 11. So there are 11 of them throughout the entire book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 has six of them. But two of them are, sa are the same. In other words, they discuss the same topic. There's a topic redundancy um, from a narrator's point of view for the purpose of highlighting that topic. And that shows up in chapter 1 and chapter 2 because God is highlighting God's six days of creation. And then he zooms in on day 6 in chapter 2 to highlight his creating Adam letting Adam name animals without his partner and recognize, uh, I'm missing something. God's saying the first time in scripture, it is not good. After 17, it is good, right? And on day six, day six, correcting the, it is not good to set the record straight. God would, would, would make Eve on day six. And that would mean, uh, at the end of day six, evening and morning were the, were the sixth day. It was very good. And so God would highlight that with a toledoth. These are the generations of or the genealogies of. So that that's all like scholastic information, but it helps us to understand the book and the way it was written. So chapters 12 to chapter 50, much bigger content, right? Chapters 12 to chapter 50 have five of those sections, which we will highlight when we get to them. So we've been dividing the book under those narrative words. These are the generations of, these are the genealogies of, and that's going to be important for, to help us understand verses one to eight, because this ends the a section of Toledos before the next one begins. All right. Now, with that said, um, I've entitled the message today, sin destroys, God delivers. That's our annual theme based on the text of Genesis. Sin destroys, God delivers. What does God mean? Perhaps you were looking at this section of scripture and you asked that question, what on earth does God mean by the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and, you know, there are giants on the earth and, you know, there's men of renown and, uh, oh man, you know, all the, you know, the, the neurons are exploding today. What in the world does this mean? And that's a great question. To ask, and that's why I've titled the, the sermon with a question, which I generally don't normally do. Well, I can tell you that the theme in this section is man's destruction with God's gracious deliverance. Did you see that? God is sorry, or he relents is a better way to translate that Hebrew word. God relents that he made man. There's sorrow, there's emotional duress over the filth and degradation that all of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. And thus, God promises destruction. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That would, that's what James tells us. Death is what flows out of the depravity of mankind in this early history report. But Noah found grace. Though God's 
a man's destruction is imminent. God's deliverance is gracious. And that, my friends, is the key to understanding and, and sort of uh, tearing apart and reconstructing and understanding the original intent of God's communication here. And simply put, if, I, if you can take one takeaway from the entire uh, discussion that we're about to just dive deep into, it will be this. God means what he says. Do you trust him? That's it. God means what he says. Do you trust him? And by the way, as I was walking through this text, I had to ask that question myself. Do I trust him? So, you know, when a preacher says that, he's including himself. So imagine a, a copy of me sitting out there listening to me, okay? Uh, so you understand that I put myself in the same boat. I'm in a human of the human race, part of you, a sheep in the sheepfold, just happening to be commissioned to shepherd this body. And, and one of the reasons why we're going to discuss this in detail this morning is there are really two widely divergent views in this text. I think I mentioned it to you last time. Um, don't do this now. I wouldn't recommend doing it after church either, but some of you will anyway, so I'll just say it. Uh, if you look up on YouTube, Nephilim, you are going to find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of YouTube videos about this passage. And it will go to the macabre. It will go to the supernatural. It will go to you know, uh, ancient alien history. It will go to, you know, pictures of excavations of skulls the size of, you know, a, a Mack truck. I mean, it will go to, you know, leg bones that are, you know, 12 feet long. You know, I mean, it, it, I'm telling you, it will take you to the extremities. All right. So this passage is the most difficult passage for interpreters of the Bible to aptly and accurately explain in context, and it's why there are so many strange and divergent views um, from trying, trying to stay into the text of Scripture, which is what we're going to do today, to letting it go all the way to strange conspiracy theories and ancient, uh, ancient aliens seeding the primordial goo of earth and you know creating the race in their image, which is basically just another, another God view right? It's just there was an alien that was God instead of a God that was God, okay? Anyway, I digress. So as we look at the text, um, this text really breaks down into two paragraphs. Now, uh, technically, it's, there's three paragraphs in the Hebrew. Verses 1 and 2 form a paragraph. Verses 3 and 4 form a paragraph. Verses 5 through 8 form a paragraph. Uh, but I am going to take verses 1 to 4 in, as, as a part of a whole together, okay? And verses 5 to 8, and I'm going to explain them together. Verses 1 to 4 have a lot of challenges in understanding and computing. So as we look at this, just remember, this passage breaks down into two thoughts, man's destruction, God's gracious deliverance. Those two thoughts bring us to the propositional question, God means what he says, so do you trust him? So as you think about that, if God means what he says and he does, do I trust him? And that's the question we're going to ask as we walk through. And I might repeat that and bludgeon it to death as we go through, okay? Sorry for beating a dead horse, but you know me. That's what happens with me from time to time. 
So let's ask this question then about the text. How can we know what God meant in the text with such widely divergent views on it? Like I said, this is the second time I've ever preached a message like this. You know me, I like propositional truth. I don't like to delve into controversy, but I am teaching you as your pastor how to walk through controversial topics in Scripture and understand them based on Scripture, okay? And this, this is something that you, if you, as you learn it, you will learn to do this yourself, okay? Because no Scripture is of any private interpretation, Peter would say. The holy men of God uh, were moved by the Holy Spirit of God as they wrote down exactly what God intended all right. So you do not need a private interpreter, i.e. a priest, a clergy, to tell you what the Bible means. You have the Holy Spirit of God to help you understand this biblically uh, saturated and Holy Spirit written book. Okay. So let me frame it again. Last time we were together, I told you, look at, there was one word that shows up over and over and over and over and over again. And hopefully you remember what it was. Let me just uh, highlight it for you. Okay, look at verse 6. When men began to multiply, saw the daughters of men. Verse 3, that's verse 2. Verse 3, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Okay, bore children to them. Those were mighty men, men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw the weakness of man that it was great, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continue, the Lord was sorry that he made man. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, verse 7, whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. Okay, Uh, for I'm sorry I made them. Who's the them a reference to? Man, and then the first man that's mentioned in verse 8, but Noah, right? So what is the word that shows up over and over again? Man, men, all right? So right there, we we just need to stop for a moment and remember written communication is meant to be clear, right? There's a doctrine that's called perspicuity, It's the most unclear word to say what you mean in clarity. The perspicuity of Scripture means that it is clear. So why a theologian would choose the dumbest word to explain clarity, I have no idea. But the Scripture is meant to be clear. It's perspicuous, okay? It's meant to be clear and understood. When you talk to your kids, do you want them to walk away going, "Uh, what did mom say? What did dad say? No, in fact, sometimes you'll be so clear, you actually lay out in detail, right, moms? I want you to go into the bathroom. I want you to get your toothbrush out. I want you to get toothpaste. Undo the cap of the toothpaste. Put toothpaste on the toothbrush. Put the toothbrush on your teeth and move your hands back and forth until you feel the toothpaste rubbing your teeth and sudsing in your mouth. Count or sing to yourself, happy birthday. It's your birthday, happy birthday, right? When you're done, spit it out. Do not swallow it, it is toxic, right? Are, are, you, are you following me, moms? How many times have you had that discussion with your 18, I mean, your children, <laughs> right? Um, so 
That communication is not meant for them to walk away. Whoa, what did mom want me to do? What was I supposed to do? Was some kind of brush? I would comb my hair with some kind of slime? Uh, what? No, no, that's meant to be clear. God's word is meant to be clear. All right? So what I'm going to share with you, though, um, gets really unclear. So we need to just make sure we tie ourselves to clear human communication. God is God, but God chose to communicate through men in a language that men can understand. And so let's look at the text and try to understand it. Big context. Chapter 4, verse 26 was the end of the first Toledoth section that was bookended, first and second. Not only was the narrative masterly written, but the message was unmistakably presented. Do you remember? The, God's way of worship will produce the fruit of followers. In chapter 4, we had a guy named Cain introduced, and you know the story. Cain kills his brother Abel. Eve thought Cain was the guy. You know the guy. The guy that God said, by the way, I'm going to give you a seed, and he's going to crush the serpent's head, and he's going to be bruised. So she goes, I've received a man-child from the Lord. Hallelujah. She didn't say hallelujah, but maybe she did, right? It's not recorded for us, but that was my idea. That's the explanation there in the text. Instead, Cain is not the hallelujah. He brings tears to the family as he murders his brother. There's a follow-up. There's an insertion of a Cainite lineage there in chapter 4. And then there's a follow-up with a new Cain, as it were, another child that is born um, that was to replace both Cain and Abel, and his name is Seth. So Seth's lineage then gets tracked through chapter 5 to a man named Noah. And when we look at that Toledoth, what we found and what the explanation was, and there was that horrible, murderous uh, song that one of Cain's descendants sang about how he, you know, he murdered a guy, uh, he murdered uh, a guy in his anger and his insolence, uh, and it's just a terrible, terrible reverie in violence. And what we find is that your and my choice of paths will produce the fruit of followers. When we choose God's way of worship, we have the fruit of following followers who will follow God. If we choose Cain's way of self-aggrandizement, self-acclaim, there will be nothing to keep us from getting people out of our way. And Cain's way leads to a way of destruction. And that's what we saw when we ended chapter 4. Then as we picked up chapter 5, we understood this second standalone Toledoth section. It ends in chapter 6, 8. So we end the second section of the, this masterfully written book that has 10 sections. We end the second section with verse 8 of chapter 6. And it picked up that truth of two worldviews shown in chapter 4 that culminate in the fruit of followers whose lives reveal two divergent paths. To follow Cain is to receive God's curse, which results in eternal separation from God and a demonically empowered desire to live life apart from God. To follow Seth is to receive God's blessing of a promised deliverance despite the universality of sin and its consequences. Neither descendant's lineage can escape the universality of sin and its consequences of death and destruction, but God brings deliverance God's way through Seth's line. That's clear in the text. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And who is Noah descended of? Seth. So that's the master message of the big picture of the text. This is made clear when we understand the narrative comparison and purpose of the Sethite lineage, which is chapter 5. That's all that chapter 5 is about. This is seen through the comparison between Lamech, 4.23 and 24, and righteous Enoch, 5.23 and 24. Ironically, the same verses in two separate chapters. Uh, they, they, uh, there's an inferred 
uh, two genealogies there, and they highlight the contrast in the moral character between the sons of Seth, which are righteous, as shown by Enoch, and the hope of the blessing that lies with Seth's descendants, Noah. Now, this is all the more startling when we recall Noah's father, who is also named Lamech, in verses 28-31 of chapter 5. The juxtaposition between Lamech, who is Noah's father, and Lamech, who is Cain's descendant of each household, underscores the contrast. So we ended the last time we were together with a big picture of the message narrative. When you follow God's way, you find deliverance. But if you follow man's way, you'll only see destruction. Our takeaway from that thematic approach last time we were in this section was you must choose God's way to be delivered. That was the takeaway. Now, let's just just quickly reboot and say, for our modern audience, fast forward thousands of years, what is God's way of deliverance? Or rather, who is God's way? His name is Jesus. Jesus is not only a descendant of Adam, if we follow the Matthew genealogy, but he's a descendant of Seth through Noah. Then he's a descendant of uh, Judah through Jacob and a descendant of David. So he is thus the rightful ruler of Israel, a son of Israel through the lineage of Judah, but he is also the savior of the world. He is the Messiah, the promised one, who in Genesis 3.15 was called to crush the serpent's head, though his heel would be bruised. He is the lamb that was to be sacrificed. And remember, Genesis is written to whom? Israelites as a nation, as they're exiting, right after their exodus from Egypt, when they needed a deliverer, and Moses is the author, and he was the type of Messiah to come who would deliver God's people from Egypt. And so Moses is writing as the deliverer, as a type of the deliverer to come, and that type of the deliverer was masterfully explained in Exodus, in the story of Exodus, over the Passover, at the installation of Passover, when God said, I am going to send a death angel to the entire nation of Egypt and to Goshen where you live, and unless you slaughter a, an innocent, perfect, spotless yearling of the flock, a lamb, and you take its blood with hyssop and you splatter it on the top and the sides of your door, which would drip down and form a perfect cross of blood, then when the death angel passes, he will not pass over you, but he will take the life of your firstborn because blood is required for sin. And so the Passover lamb would be a picture. The deliverer Moses, the great prophet Moses, would showcase a deliverance that was needed. There would be need for a blood sacrifice and atonement to take the place of man, to take the place of Israel, one life for a life blood for blood, and God would promise that through the Sethite lineage, through Israel or Judah, through Judah, right? Israel or Jacob, through Judah, through David, it's Jesus. Now, go back to the text. So with this contextual backdrop in mind, taking into consideration the sweeping context in the narrative, I already told you how many times did you mark the word man or men in this text, we need to explain there's a couple of views on this, okay? There's a couple of, of major offshoots. There's two views with a bunch of little offshoots on this. Uh, and so we see in verses 1 to 4 a bunch of diverse views, two main ones, right? The first one is simply this. 
that this phrase, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, by the way, they are having, are they, are they obeying God? Yes, they're having multiplication. They're having, they are, are having kids and spreading out. Okay, but uh, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men. They were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, there's, a, there's a, an interpretation that would say this phrase sons of God. I'm going to explain this here a little bit further, but the phrase sons of God doesn't refer to men. It refers to angels, fallen angels, so that somehow fallen angels procreated with the daughters of men and created a special race of superhuman. So one of the derivations is it's either superhuman that became sort of king and rulers in that generation. They were men of re renown, mighty men, done mighty deeds, um, which are typified in verses 5 to 8 by violence. Okay, Or they were some kind of hybrid demon baby. I, I, I'm, I'm not making this up, okay? This is just... What it, I'm just trying to be honest with what the people are saying. This is a hybrid demon, demon human baby. And the demon human baby, this hybrid, uh, causes incredible violence across the planet and thus leads to this destruction, okay? And also produces uh, Nephilim, which here the text translates as giant, which some would then take as literal giant. And there you get these giant skulls of, you know, 18, 20 foot people, whatever. Okay, that's one. One branch with lots of little branches. Um, the other branch, um, and, and the, the proponents, I'm going to go through that argument here in a minute without interrupting it, but the proponents of that argument date all the way back to the early, earliest uh, centuries of Bible interpretation and even to Jewish interpreters and their understanding of the Bible. Uh, the second interpretation, second main one, is, is that this is these were... The sons of, of God were a reference to the blessed line of Seth and the Sethite descendants, human descendants, that would choose wives of anybody they wanted. So not just descendants of Seth, like the righteous, but also descendants of Cain that were choosing divergent paths against God. And so the blending of the lineages, God's people righteous Seth and the family of Cain who was cursed because Cain wanted to do his own thing, right? They blended and because of that there was no discernible difference between God's righteous people and God's cursed those who who did not follow God. And thus God the 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 whole earth was full of violence and God was bringing judgment, but Noah founds finds grace. All right. So that's that's in a nutshell the two Two paths. Some of you already have decided where you are on that, and that's fine. But let's let the text tell us what we think and why. All right, so as we look at this, verse 1, although the stated reason for God's judgment against the earth is encouraging moral perversion, or excuse me, encroaching, not encouraging, encroaching moral perversion, verse 5, there is an implication in the passage that the marriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men contributed in some way to this moral decline, right? This, suggest, this is suggested by the punishment oracle in verse 3 and the parallel, parallel use of God's saw in verses 2 and 5, which describe the behavior of the sons of God toward the daughters of men. 
And then God's response to the sin in verse 5. Essentially, verse 1 reports what was depicted in chapters 4 and 5 concerning the expansion of human life and achievement, but it also puts the force of the connection between the population growth and the divine pattern for marriage. We mentioned that before. All right, so this identity of the sons of God and daughters of men is a major interpretive obstacle, but the whole passage is replete with problems that are interdependent. So let's ask the question, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? And what is the nature of their actions? What was God's response? Who are the Nephilim? Um, by the way, the Nephilim is the, is the Hebrew word um, that we see here uh, when it says they were uh, giants on the earth. Okay, the, the, the word giant is the Hebrew word Nephilim. And then the word that's translated mighty, mighty men um, is, is the Hebrew word Gibberim. All right, so I'm, I'm transliterating Hebrew words for you. Nephilim, mighty, or Nephilim, giants, uh, mighty men, gibberim. All right, so those are the two Hebrew words. If I say those and I slip up and say weird Hebrewisms, please forgive me just in my head this week, okay? So as we think of those passages and we look at this, we need to ask this question, what is going on here and what do I do with this? So who are these sons of God? Why is there even a view... Um, that, that would say these might be angels, fallen angels, demons. What's going on here? Well, um, what we have here is three options or two options, angels um, and or descendants of Seth. And in the angel category and descendant of Seth category, there's a hybrid version that kind of meets in the middle that these were human judges or rulers that were either descended from angel-demon hybrids or descended from Seth hybrids. So it's really kind of the same idea. So I'm saying there's two. These were either fallen angels that came into the daughters of, of men, or these are descendants of Seth. Okay? So let's talk about the angelic celestial beings as the sons of God. This is a bene ha Elohim. That's how, that's the literal Hebrew there. It's defined by God. By moving outside, so these angels apparently move. This is the this is the interpretation. These angels moved outside their appointed realm. They married or molested, however you want to look at it, human daughters. In this interpretation, the phrase "bene ha Elohim" Elohim is taken as a proper noun or a god or god or as a genitive of attribute indicating quality. So these, in other words, were uh, men that were qualitative, or excuse me, angels, fallen angels that were qualitatively godlike. So this is where the idea of they might be angels comes from. Now, to put this in perspective, um, this phrase is also used in Job to describe uh, what seems to be angelic or supernatural beings that were um, walking or presenting themselves when Satan comes to present themselves before God, himself before God, um, they seem to be in God's presence. So to be clear, the phrase itself is also used in Job. Now, um, this gets into the theological weeds a bit, and again, why I don't like preaching messages like this, because I don't want to glass you over and lose you. Okay, but remember, Genesis is written in 1440-ish, from 1440 to 1400 or 1406 BC by Moses to the children of Israel to describe human history and thus the chosen people's history. And so Genesis is written at that time. Job was likely a living at the time of the patriarchs. 
patriarchs came before Moses, right? Abraham lived more than 400 years before Moses did. Job may have lived 400 years before Moses. But the book of Job was, we don't know when it was written and we don't know who wrote it. Some folks would actually suggest that Job was written by the, the school of the prophets that also uh, wrote the Chronicles or the Chronicler. In other words, it was a historian who was compiling uh, ancient historical texts and wrote the book of Job. Of course, either way, whoever wrote the book of Job, God inspired the book of Job, and the Holy Spirit wrote it down exactly how it was meant, and it is in our Bible, and it is God's Word, okay? It's inerrantly infallible and inspired, and it's a message for us today. The book, but I'm saying that to tell you this, the argument goes that Job was before Genesis, and therefore the interpretation of this word must be understood by the interpretation of Job, not the interpretation of Genesis, the first book ever written that we know of in Scripture. Do you see the, the difficulty in the premise there? We actually know when Genesis was written. We have no idea when Job was written. We actually know who wrote Genesis. We don't know who wrote Job. Okay, so, so Genesis, when you see a word and its usage, the context determines its usage, and the history of the word helps to inform that determination. So uh, before I get into my interpretation of this, let's keep going. So this phrase, sons of God, is a challenging phrase. Now, in this latter sense, if we were to, if, uh, if we were to say these are divine beings, then they are in the realm of the heavenly angels in contrast to the daughters of men. It's a contrast whose realm is terrestrial or earthly. As the argument runs, their unnatural sexual union produced the Nephilim, whose notorious deeds, verse 4, required the strongest of penalties, verse 5. Proponents of this view can boast that it is the oldest opinion known, since it is advocated among the Jews at least by the 2nd century B.C., uh, as indicated by 1st Enoch 6 through 11. Now, do you even know what I just said? The book of Enoch is an intertestamental apocryphal book that shows up the first time in Christendom in a Christian Bible in 1611 in the authorized version. King James authorized 13 synods of men to translate 11 Greek texts called the Textus Receptus into modern English, and they also included historical documents called the Apocrypha. If you want to actually see a real copy of the 1611 or a 400th anniversary edition that's printed and it's about this ginormously big, it is actually in a Bible museum in Litchfield Road in the Hampton Inn lobby next to a rental car company. You can walk into the lobby, walk into it, and see it under glass, an actual 1611, not open to the Apocrypha. They usually keep it open to like Psalm 23 or John 3.16. Uh, and you can see on an open display on a desk like this an actual printed copy of it. And you can go see for yourself. You open up that Bible to the in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll have that many pages of non biblical, intertestamental, historical, non inspired, non inerrant books. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Enoch is one of those books. The book of Enoch is supposedly tracking, it's the history, supposed history of Enoch, who the scripture only gives us one verse about him. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. That's it. And there's an entire historical book written about Enoch, 
And a lot of this interpretation comes from the intertestamental, non-biblical, historical book written by Jews in probably the 2nd or 3rd century BC, or maybe the 6th century BC, compiled probably by the Chronicler, inserted in an English translation of the Bible, which we revere and respect. But it is in that original printing of the 1611. It's an apocryphal book. Um, by the way, my parents were saved out of Catholicism, and the single Bible that they had when I, when I started looking at the Bible as a kid was a Catholic Bible, and guess what it has in it? The Apocrypha. It, it's actually in the Bible that the Catholic Church would use. It's the Apocrypha. Historical book, but not inspired. So the book of Enoch actually references this sort of issue, these angel, and the book of Enoch definitely interprets this as demons making some kind of hybrid human baby, and um, even some would say, and I'm going to get there in a minute, some New Testament passages might reference that. So I'm explaining that to be honest with this position. You understand that position. I'm being honest with the position. This is where it comes from. Let me keep going. Now, uh, early Christian writers also advocated this angel view. The influence of Enoch is actually found among Christian writers uh, of the East until the 3rd century and among Latin authors, including Ambrose. Okay? Now, the strength of this traditional opinion lies in the use of the phrase elsewhere and referring to angelic hosts. Uh, moreover, since ha-adam, that's the word for men or man, it occurs in verse 1 as a reference to collective mankind. We can expect the same meaning in verse 2 where it occurs for the daughter of men. So this indicates, according to this view, that there is a contrast between the daughters of men, who refers to human women, and the sons of God, who are divine angels, perhaps. Additionally, as noted earlier, there's evidence of an ancient memory among pagan peoples that celestial beings had cohabited with humans. Um, outside of scripture, there's things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. If any of you have ever read that, it's a really fanciful, fascinating, um, fallacious, but fun to read. Um, really kind of weird. Uh, and they, they, would, they also believe that, that they would dwell with them and make you know, demigods, etc., etc. All right, now, this view, this, thus in view, the Hebrew account um, is meant to correct the false notion that there was in antiquity a superhuman race of semi-divine beings and shows the culprits were not gods but degenerate angels. So the people that are proposing this angelic view are doing it to, to counteract the false views of demigods from the secular sources. But they're still saying these are angels. All right. Now, here we go. In reference here to fallen angels, there are some Christian proponents of this interpretation that appeal to the New Testament. You say, where on earth is this discussed in the New Testament? That was a really astute question. Good job, guys. Give yourself a pat on the back. I'm glad you asked that. Let's look. 1 Peter chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's actually three references. This is, now remember, I want you to, to do this with an open mind. I'm taking you where proponents of this view will take you. Okay? And I want you to read, I want you to read along with me what the text says so you can uh, decide for yourself. Does the text actually say that? All right, so here we go. I'm going to read, I'm going to start in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, 
demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. You know what? That is a fantastic passage, but it's not the correct passage. I'm reading in James. You're welcome. That's what happens when you get three and a half hours of sleep. All right. First Peter. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, by the way, read, James, read that passage later. It was a great passage, but it has nothing to do with the message today. Sorry about strike that. All right, here we go. First Peter, first Peter chapter three, first Peter chapter three, um, verses 19 to 20. I said it was first Peter, but I was reading in James. So that was my bad. First Peter chapter three, let's go back to verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they def defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is your walk with God, your conduct in life in a sin-cursed world where you're being persecuted and suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, suffer just like Jesus did. Now he goes on, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Who's the subject of this? Christ. He's the just one for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Yeah, I'm done. Just, just looking at you to see if you connect angel demon babies to this passage. Because that's this, this is the passage that they're connected to. All right. There's another one. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, here it goes. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And I'm going to go back, though, to verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people. This is 2 Peter 2, 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Let me just pause for a second. This is by the death. This is the death blow to the hyper five-point Calvinist position. False teachers among you denying the Lord who bought them. Okay, I'm not preaching on that right now, but I'm just saying this is a death blow to that hyper position. Anyway, keep going. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. This is about false teachers. For if God, verse 4, did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. 
I could keep going, but I'm going to pause there and say, did you see the angels bearing spirit babies in this passage? Well, he's just talking about Noah. He's talking about the angels who were delivered for destruction. And then he says, and in the days of Noah. It sounds like there are multiple illustrations here, but it's there's no clear sons of God, daughters of men, uh, angels having spirit babies. But it's this is this is the major passage that is used for that position. There's another one. Let's look at Jude 6. I'm almost done, by the way. I know this is really heavy for Mother's Day. I'm very sorry. Jude 6. Let's jump back to verse 5. Remember, Jude says, I wanted to write to you of our common salvation, but rather now I need to write to you about a topic. I want you to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. So you will have to fight and strive to make sure in this wicked generation that you keep the faith. What is the faith? The faith that God in Christ has provided salvation for all who believe. That's the faith, okay? When he goes on now in verse five, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he's talking about the children of Israel in Exodus, the 40 years of backsliding, complaining, that entire generation died. The Lord destroyed them. Second generation succeeds. Joshua leads them in the promised land. You know the rest of the story. Keep going. And the verse, the verb that is linked to verse six is the word destroyed, in verse 5, so you're thinking destroyed, God destroyed, and now verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now he references Sodom and Gomorrah again, just like Peter did, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now notice the connection to sexual perversion is about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's in the same context as angels having left their proper domain. So the reason why this text is used to talk about angels, demonic angels making hybrid human spirit babies is because of the context of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual perversion that seems to be linked in this passage. But just like in Peter, there are illustrations given one after another, after another, after another, after another. Do you see that? Peter and Jude are illustrating things that condemn and judge where the gospel saves and delivers. Christ is our savior and our deliverer, the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve who crushes the serpent's head. He is the sacrificial lamb who is the once for all substitute for the sins of the whole world and all saints will call on him and believe in him with mouth confession and heart belief and will turn in repentance from their sins or else they too will be damned like we all deserve. That's the message Jude is preaching. That's the message Peter is preaching, and they're illustrating things. They're saying even angels who disobeyed God and left their proper place. Now, there's a lot of interpretations for left their proper place, but the people that are taking this position from Genesis 1 to 4 are saying angels leaving their proper place must mean they came into the daughters of men. They committed sexual perversion. Do you see that connection? 
not refuting that right now. I'm just telling you this is where they get it from. So Old Testament, New Testament, explaining each other, and this is the position that they take. Now, uh, where do I go from here? What else do I need to explain? Okay, let me just give some drawbacks. The sons of God as the angels has its drawbacks. Contextually, there's been no identification of an angelic host, not at least in the sense of a heavenly court or in the account at all leading up to this point, has there? The only created being that we have entering the narrative is the serpent. And it's unclear what this serpent is. Now, later on through scripture, we understand that that the serpent is a title for Satan, not that Satan was the serpent, because the serpent was a physical creature that was cursed in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3. But perhaps Satan entered the serpent or somehow used the serpent to deceive Eve and see Adam fall in sin. Okay, that's, that's an interpretation. Right now, contextually, there's been no identification of angelic hosts. Now, moreover, from the beginning to the end of chapter six, verses one to eight, concerning humanity and its outcome, not angels and their punishment. So, uh, what? How many times is man mentioned? Over and over and over and over. Is is an angel mentioned at all? And in fact, who finds favor? A man. And who is delivered? Men. And when Pastor Stephen preached three messages on the next couple of chapters, what did he say? He told us that men receive the same commission, be fruitful and multiply uh, and repopulate the earth. Now, there wasn't a, a re-dominion commission there. It was an understood dominion. And Noah had to worship God, did worship God by taking some of the animals that he had saved and sacrificing them to God, right? So... So there is, a, there is a contextual issue right from the start here as we look at the text. There's no reference to the culpability of angels. Also, it's difficult to reckon this view with procreation as power bestowed by God upon the terrestrial order of animals and humanity. There's no biblical evidence elsewhere that procreation is a trait of heavenly hosts. Nowhere are we told that angels can procreate at all. In fact... Um, there's, you know, not yet there's here, there is a significant difference between holy angels who acquire the ability to eat and rebellious angels who acquire supposedly sexual properties. By what line of reason does one propose the fallen condition of angels somehow result in the exercise of corporeal procreation? Angels are spiritual beings, not corporeal. Hebrews 1, 7 and 14 clearly says that. God made Jesus a little lower than the angels when he... Jesus took on a human body. He became the God-man, a hypostatic union. But now God has raised Jesus higher than the angels because, by the way, Jesus is the creator of angels. All right? That's the argument in Hebrews. So Jesus, when distinguishing earthly life from that of heaven, asserts that angels do not have sexual relations as humans and implies they are not sexual. Matthew 22, verse 30. So this differs remarkably from the pagan perception of supernatural beings. Moreover, the New Testament evidence presented for this interpretation is complicated by its exegetical obscurities. We just went through them, didn't we? There's uncertain relationships between the uh, Jewish pseudepigrapha, especially in uh, First Enoch, 
Um, First Enoch 1 through 36 tells, tells of Enoch's journeys, as I told you, following his translation. He's commissioned to forewarn a fallen angel who sinned by co cohabiting with women. Afterward, the book recounts his universal travels, including his visits to the abyss, where he sees the imprisoned angels detained until the final judgment. And it's apparent to anyone familiar with the Jewish, Jewish apocryphal literature that this is the interpretation that they took from Genesis 1 to 6. So that all of that interpretation comes from a Jewish historical book, not inspired by God, not given to God by the Holy Spirit for men to write down for us to, to follow. There are 66 books in our God-inspired and Aaron infallible Bible. Okay? Are you tracking with me? So the book of Enoch doesn't exist in our Bible. Is it interesting reading? Absolutely. But I just summarized it for you, so you don't waste your money or time. If you want to, go ahead. You have the Holy Spirit and hopefully spiritual discernment. But uh, I'm telling you, that's what it's about. So let's talk about this. Uh, final position so I can I can kind of help uh, us understand what's going on okay so this final understanding is this is these are Sethites okay um, the idea of sons of God as actual humans um, here is is basically contextual it's, it's that bene ha Elohim is best rendered the sons of 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 God uh, or the sons um, the, the sons of God as in God's created humans, okay, in his image. With Cain's lineage, we have origins uh, of city organizations, polygamy, and violent tyranny. So it's no surprise that, uh, that his descendants now scatter across the earth. They're making population bases and city centers. We were already told that in Genesis chapter 4, that uh, his descendants created metallurgy and music and civilization, and all of those are good things, but those combined with the depravity of man and the, the attraction of city life draw Sethite followers in, and they began to choose to marry whomever they wanted, and thus all of mankind was polluted and perverted, and nothing in their heart was kept from the depravity of mankind. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 6 is that their thoughts were only ever evil continually. This is the idea, okay? So Elohim then can be rendered as a genitive of quality, meaning godly sons, referring to the heritage of Sethites. Um, so this pointing to human reference instead of angels. The importance of the weight of the Pentateuch's testimony, by the way, which also identifies the children of God as in this same way, with a slight synonym derivation. And for that, you could see it in Deuteronomy 14, 1, 32, 5 to 6, Exodus 4, 22, Psalm 73, 15, and Psalm 80, 15. So there's a lot of biblical support to say that the phrase sons of God is God referencing to Israel godly descendants, which are your heritage. Are you tracking? Remember, Moses writes this to whom? Israel to track the descendants of Israel, who are descendants of Seth, of the lineage of Noah, and eventually of Shem. Seth, Noah, Shem. All right? So this is, this is written to them to follow their history and their heritage. So it's, it's a natural understood to insert here that these are humans. Sons of God are humans. They were, they were Sethite descendants. This, this is the way the argument goes. 
All right. So, um, what else do I need to say? I have so many notes here. I'm trying to decide what to say because I'm out of time. Um, what else should I comment on? Uh, another, there's several other controversial things here. For example, um, the idea of God's spirit is the idea of his, it's rendered spirit, but it could be rendered breath or wind. Okay, I know, thanks. That was a reminder that we need to sing. I saw that. Um, spirit, breath, or wind. It's a beautiful comparison. My spirit will not always strive with man. Pastor Stephen already brought this into play. After the flood, what happens? God sends a wind across the face of the earth. Same word. So the spirit of God will not strive with man. They are destined to destruction, but the Spirit of God will blast the waters of the flood back, making a way for, for mankind to again populate the earth. God delivers, but sin destroys. All right? So I guess in conclusion is uh, the spirit baby theory or the demonic, the demonic angels that left their proper place, the, the implication by those who take that position is that by leaving their proper place, it wasn't just their fall from heaven, but they fell from heaven and then they wanted to procreate with mankind. But there's no place in Scripture that makes that clear link in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And even though there's word usage that seems to be similar, this is the first use. And the context of this use, the word man and mankind shows up over and over and over and the main player is Seth. Seth is the lineage that we're following. And it ends with Noah, a human, found grace in God's eyes, who is a descendant of Seth. And God will save humankind through Noah, a descendant of Seth. And he's going to wipe out all the past descendants of Adam and Seth who failed him and were now only doing evil continually. Right? Filling the earth with violence. So... Though there, I, I may not have convinced you to change your stance, uh, or I may have ho hopefully solidified your understanding that Bible difficulties can be understood rightly when you look at their context, and you're not afraid to go to the other contexts and look at those plainly as well. But remember, the plain sense of the text, if it makes sense, is the plain sense. And so when you look at the plain sense of this text, um, it's, it seems very clear that these are humans. Okay? If you take the demonic angel uh, issue, I would have a, an issue with angel actually doing this, but I, can, I will give you this for those of you who prefer that, that inter interpretation. I believe the New Testament clearly shows mankind can be demonically possessed. Do you agree with that? Did Jesus cast out demons? Yes, he did. So I will grant you a hybrid position that demons possessed humans who thus impregnated women like normal following the natural means of getting married and procreating, but they were demon-possessed people who thus reared their kids with demonic influences and, and filled the earth with violence. And the Sethite line was polluted with demon-possessed men who were having children, procreating naturally. And so the God little G of this world had full reign and full dominion over the planet. And now God was going to wipe them out. 
but they're still humans naturally procreating under a demonic influence. That, that might be the middle ground position of this, but either way, the emphasis is on God delivering man. So when we look at scripture, and we're going to circle back, and I'm done, I'm really done, I'm tired, and you're tired of listening to this, I'm sure. Today we saw the narrative continue to two divergent worldviews, right? We know that each human can choose God's blessing by honoring his creator's image and obeying his creator's mandate, or he can choose the divergent path of destruction, and there is no middle ground. Much like we saw in chapter 4, picking up on our annual theme, sin destroys and God delivers, we see that one path serves God and produces the fruit of lifelong worshipers who extend God's grace, love, and mercy and the promise of an eternal redemption to a lost and dying world. The other produces the fruit of self-aggrandizing pride that leads to self-promotion at all costs and results in a world that promotes violence, self-indulgence, the denigration of women, and a cheap view of life that results in eternal damnation and separation from God. There is no doubt today that God means what he says. Sin destroys, but God delivers. The question remains, do you and I trust him? And when we look at Bible difficulties, we must say, is God trustworthy? And as we interpret this passage, how we look at Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture will affect how we do that all the way through our study. And we've got to stick to the Scripture as tightly as possible. I've given